Okay, so go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30 is where we're going to be spending our time together today. And uh, the idea of just continuing through our series in the book of Romans. And we've said before last week as we started chapter 8 that it has been called one of the most important sections of scripture in the entire Bible. It's an amazing place to be able to, uh, to spend our time together. In the fall of 1997, it was my senior year in high school. Uh, I was, you know, just trying to get through my last year of school, like like most seniors would be. And uh, really, in that time of my life, things should have been going really well. Things should have been looking up, but stuff was actually falling apart in my life. I really stopped trying to restrain sin in my life because I really didn't see a reason why. It was just this thing that, uh, you know, I had always tried to stay away from uh, sin and try to stay away from doing bad things just because I was, you know, it's kind of what you're supposed to do. And uh, I started questioning some of those things and started, started realizing, you know what, I don't really, I don't really know what the answer why I should not do this or why I should restrain this. And so bad flu influences started to flood into my life. And, uh, you know, there were things that were leading me into deeper sin. And uh, I, uh, you know, I was working a job, uh, working at Kmart, and I actually got fired from Kmart for stealing and helping other employees to steal. I don't know if my mom even knows that. So mom, if you're watching right now, I lied to you about that. And uh, so there's no, there's more sin there. I lied to my mom about getting fired from Kmart and uh, all that stuff. And so I actually stole from my mom in a few different ways. Uh, just different things in her home. I, I had just explosive anger in my life that was coming out in all sorts of weird ways. I was diving into sexual sin. It was just a, a time where my life was just going deeper and deeper into sin. And my life was really uh, um, described the way that Proverbs 25, 28 says it. It says this, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. That was my life. It was just that I really didn't have any self-control and I started to relax that restraint and my life started to look more and more like a city with broken down walls. Now, in our day and age, that kind of sounds like a funny idea, but in this time, in biblical times, walls meant protection. Walls are the things that kept all the good stuff in and kept all the bad stuff out. And when your walls are broken down, the good stuff flows away from you and all the bad stuff floods into your life. And so my, my life was at this spiritually low state and, and I was experiencing suffering even though in the moment in that time, in the middle of all of it, I would have actually told you I was having fun and I was living my, in freedom. I was just doing whatever I wanted to. But the truth was I was in bondage. I was in slavery. I was in spiritual suffering. And, and in all of this, at this really low state, in my senior year of high school, I end up trying out for the basketball team. And I had been on the basketball team since, I don't know, eighth grade, something like that. And I actually get cut from the basketball team my senior year. Now, that's a pretty big deal when you're in high school. School. Uh, and, uh, you know, even more than that, for me personally, I had found my identity in basketball. It was everything to me. And so this was like this final crushing blow in my life. And like never before in, in my life had I, had I been able to see so clearly that I was lost and burdened by sin. And it was in this place, in this position, that then the Lord brought the gospel message to me. I was able to hear the gospel message preached and realize that Jesus had died on the cross to save me from my sin. 
that, that I was brought to this low state and in that low state I could clearly see Jesus in a way that I was never able to before. That Jesus' sacrifice resonated within my soul in a brand new kind of way. And today as I tell that story and kind of talk about you know, that, uh, that person I was back then, it sort of feels like telling a story about somebody else. It's not really me. It's this, it's this other person. And the reality of that is that God has transformed me. But in that transformation, he used suffering in my life, he used pain in my life to get me to clearly see my desperate need for him. And this is something that God does in our lives. He uses pain. He uses suffering. He uses the things that we would normally avoid in order to get us to the end of ourselves where we can clearly see him. And that's our big idea today as we look at Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 30. It's this, God is in control and at work for his glory and our good. God is in control and he's at work for his glory and our good. So let's read Romans 8 verses 18 through 30 and then we'll go back through and break it down together. Romans 8, 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the re revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility but not willingly but because of him who, was sub who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits uh, of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know how we ought to pray. Uh, for we do not know it. Uh, what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows the mind of this, what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercessions for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we just want to pause and ask you for your help. Lord, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, impart your wisdom to us? Would you give us understanding? Would you allow us to know you better and to understand your word? We freely recognize and realize that apart from you, we can't do anything. Jesus, you told us that in John 15. And that includes even opening your word and understanding it. We need you to reveal yourself to us and give us the ability to know you. And so we pray that uh, you would show us how you are good how you are in control, that you haven't lost control, and that we can trust you. We pray together in your name, Jesus. Amen. Today, as we look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30, we're going to break it down into three different parts. The first part, 18 through 22, redemption and God's creation. The second part, 23 through 27, redemption and God's spirit. And then the third part, 28 through 30, redemption and God's 
plan. Now, the first half of chapter 8, which we looked at last week, and if you missed that uh, message, you can go back online and pick that up on our website or YouTube channel. But the first half of chapter 8 ends with the Holy Spirit's work in our adoption. That the Holy Spirit is intimately at work within the adoption of God's people into the family of God. But it ties this adoption to a condition. I don't know if you caught this last week, but we really didn't touch on it because the rest of this chapter explains this that we're going to be looking at today. Look at verse 17, if you would, in Romans chapter 8. It says this, And if children, then heirs, uh, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Look at this. Here's the condition. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. There's a condition that is associated with this adoption that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives. And the condition is one that we don't really like. I mean, it's like, this is a verse that I think, you know, if, if I was writing some sort of spiritual book, I would not put this in there. That the idea of suffering links to your adoption, that, that sounds crazy. And then the idea of suffering is also juxtaposed with another idea of glory. That, the, that these, this idea of this condition of suffering is linking opposing concepts of suffering and glory. Now, the rest of chapter 8 that we're going to look at today expands on the spiritual paradox of suffering and glory connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. This, this section begins that we're looking at today, verses 18 through 30, it begins and ends with the idea of glory. Do you see it there in verse 18? Look at verse 18. It says uh, at the, uh, the end of verse 18, it's, it says that it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Now, skip all the way ahead to verse 30, and it says this. It says, these he, uh, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So it's kind of like these bookends to this section that we're going to be looking at. And all throughout the middle is the idea of suffering. And, and this is explaining to us how the concepts of suffering and glory work together, how, it, how they go together. You see, suffering is not random or arbitrary when it's surrounded by and submitted to the glory of God. That's a vital concept for us to grasp because we typically think of suffering as this thing that's bad, thing we've got to avoid, thing that is to be uh, taken out of our lives. But the truth is that God remains in control even in the painful situations that seem to be out of control. That he is, he is right and true and, and sovereign and he hasn't lost control. And the only right attitude for us to have in the middle of trial and hardship and pain and suffering, the only right attitude for us to have is to trust in him. So let's look at this first section together, redemption and God's creation, verses 18 through 22. It says, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see the contrast that is laid out for us here, that present earthly suffering is contrasted with future heavenly glory. Now, something that's really great about this and something that's amazing about the way that Paul describes this for us is he says that this suffering, it's not like we're going to uh, weigh them against one another and the, the suffering is going, is going to be less than the weight of glory, that the, the weight of glory is going to outweigh the suffering. It's to say that they don't even belong in the same arena. Even intense crazy suffering does not belong in the same arena as the glory that shall be revealed, as this heavenly glory that awaits us in, in eternity. 
He, he says it's, it's, it's not to be compared whatsoever. You see, there's no future hope of glory. If, where there's no future hope of glory, there's no present hope in pain. You see, the, the, as Paul is speaking on this, as he uh, uh, addresses this concept of suffering and glory, he's not speaking from some sort of disconnected, uh, academic, ivory tower, conceptual theory about, uh, about pain and suffering. It's not, he's not speaking from some comfy life of luxury. No, Paul went through intense suffering. He suffered probably more than any of us, probably more than any of us combined. Paul has gone through some crazy amounts of suffering and all for the sake of the gospel. If you want to read the, some of this uh, list of suffering that he went through, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. And we, we read there that he was beaten, that he, he was uh, beaten with rods, beaten with whips. He was stoned. Now we're in Colorado, so I got to kind of qualify that. It doesn't mean he went to the weed shop. It means that people picked up rocks and threw them at him until he died. Uh, they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Uh, and then they prayed for him and he was resurrected back to life. Uh, he had that happen. He was shipwrecked a number of times. It says he spent a night, uh, a day and a night in the deep. Can you imagine this kind of things? And that's just, just some of the things that Paul went through in terms of his suffering. He went through intense suffering. And so he's not speaking to this from some sort of disconnected theological or, or just textbook kind of a way. He's saying that this is something that is very real even in his own life. You see, all suffering is always the consequence of sin. It's always the consequence of sin. And that works itself out in two different ways. One way, two practical way that works out is that there's just general suffering from living in a fallen world. That this world is fallen, that this world is, is uh, uh, not the way that God created it. And because it's a fallen world, because of sin, we end up suffering as a result of that. There's just this general suffering that takes place. But there's also specific suffering that you endure, that I endure because of my sin. Or that you endure because of your sin. There are consequences to sin that end up bringing suffering into our life. You see, the suffering that we endure, whether it's general or specific, it's not the way God intended or created this world to be. This is, this is not the way that God envision things. This is a broken, uh, perverted, uh, fallen version of what God created. But he has called us into, into this uh, relationship with him in order to see things restored. Now, notice it says there at the end of verse 18, it says, it's not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. This is an interesting idea. Where it says that it shall be revealed, what this is telling us is that this glory is already within us. It's just not yet revealed. It hasn't been shown. It's already there within believers and we get a glimpse of it from time to time. And yet, heaven will be unhindered glory. You see, the Christian's future hope of glory is a power source to endure and overcome suffering today. When I'm able to look ahead to heavenly glory, I'm able to endure earthly suffering today. Future hope means hope for today. Verses 19 through 20, he says this, For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. We see that, that creation itself is also subjected to this fallen state the same way that humanity is. That creation itself is suffering from the consequences 
of sin. It's, it's a, a bit of a spiritual mystery exactly how this works, exactly what this looks like, but the reality is clearly seen all around us. Just this past week, I had my kids go out and pull weeds in the yard and they were complaining the entire time. And I told them afterward, I said, remember this, that it's Adam's fault that you are pulling these weeds. <laughs> that if he hadn't sinned, they would not exist, you know? And they're like, oh, that Adam, you know? Uh, it's, it's part of the consequence of sin. Creation itself is in a fallen state. Genesis 3, 17 through 18 says it like this. And to the man, he said, God said this, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of those uh, of whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though, uh, uh, I don't know, I, I wrote it wrong. Uh, let's read it. Thorns and thistles for you, though you will of its grains. I, maybe that's what it says. That's weird. Anyway, uh, the, the reality of this verse is that uh, he's speaking to the idea of the fallen creation. Now, the, interestingly, in this verse, we're, we're, we see that the second sin, the first sin after the first sin was listening to your wife. Uh, and so, man, you don't really, uh, I'm just kidding. You, don't have, you do have to listen to your wife. Uh, that's not the second sin. But the fall of humanity plunges creation itself into a fallen state as well. You see, sin affects every aspect of everything. It infects everything. It corrupts and curses creation itself. Cursed plants became weeds. That's, this is where weeds came from. Cursed animals became subject to death and actually began killing one another. I, this is a weird idea, but can you imagine vegetarian sharks and uh, lions and wolves? It's kind of a weird concept, but we're told before this time, before the sin of humanity, there was no death. That nothing died. And so, it, you know, animals weren't killing and eating each other. It's kind of a weird idea there, but that's the way that God had intended and created it because prior to Genesis 3, there was no death. And this simple truth makes evolution absolutely impossible. The whole concept of evolution, evolutionary theory is that things died and progressively got better for millions and billions and billions of years. And that, that whole concept is thrown out of the water if you just simply read through what God's word says. Death didn't even come into the world until Genesis chapter 3. The, the idea, so, so evolution doesn't work. Theistic evolution is, is a crazy idea. People try to merge scripture, merge theology with evolution. It's like trying to, to tell me about dry water. It doesn't exist. They don't go together. Those concepts are opposite of one another. They don't go together. Now, notice in verse 20, it says that he who subjected them, uh, it's in hope, that God subjected creation to this futility in hope. What this is telling us is that God always has a plan. Within his plan to redeem humanity, he also has a plan to restore creation to his glorious intent. That what God designed uh, creation to be is also part of his plan. Verse 21 says this, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. You see, the same way that creation bears the consequence of our fall, so too creation gains the benefits of our redemption. That, that God's plan of redemption of humanity also includes creation itself. And in verse 22, we're given this imagery of childbirth. Do you see it there? 
that uh, creation groans and with uh, labors with birth pains. It's this idea that 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 there's this birth taking place, and 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 you know I had the privilege of being at the birth of all four of my daughters. I was able to be there for all four of them. And uh, if there's anything that I can tell you about birth, number one, it's miraculous. And number two, I'll say it's intense to say the least. There is a, there's a lot of pain surrounding the contractions. There's a lot of intense uh, pain surrounding the birth of the child. But all of that, labor and delivery is painful, but it also carries with it the future expectation and hope of a child. And so too, this imagery is surrounding creation, that, that creation is going through this pain, this trial, this difficulty, but there's a future hope of being delivered as well. And, th- and that hope comes at verse 19, re- the revealing of the sons of God. It's that when God shows the revelation of our redemption, that when he ushers in a new era for humanity, it also is a new era for creation as well. But not only is God's uh, redemption uh, associated with God's creation, but also redemption is associated with God's spirit in verses 23 through 27. Look at verse 23. It says this, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption by the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he, is, what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. You see, not only is creation growing, but Christians have an internal and supernatural sense that this is not our home. We groan for heaven. And and every time we go through suffering, every time we go through trial, every time we endure pain, every time we're in the middle of heartache, every time it's that suffering that we endure, it reminds us this is not our home. And our goal as Christians is not to make heaven on earth. Our goal is not to make this the the paradise of of everything that, that needs to be put together to make uh, make uh, life on earth perfect. That is not what we are aiming at. What we are aiming at is, yes, seeing God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but that, that hope is a future hope. That we're not trying to make this fallen world into a utopia because that's not possible. That we are looking forward to a future hope in the suffering that we're in. Yes, we do make things better. Yes, we want to invest in and and create with the talents and gifts and abilities God has given us. We want to use our lives for the betterment of the world and the betterment of others. But that doesn't mean we're trying to make a utopia out of this world because it's just not possible. It's a fallen world that needs to be redeemed in the future. It's, it's uh, this idea uh, of having this, this sense that this place is not our home. It keeps our eyes looking up. Warren Wearsby talks about this in his um, commentary, Be Right. He says, Just as the nation of Israel tasted the first fruits of Canaan when the spies returned, in Numbers chapter 13, verses 23 through 27, so we Christians have tasted the blessings of heaven through the ministry of the Spirit. This, uh, this makes us want to see the Lord receive a new body and we live with him and serve him forever. This is the idea of verse 23, the first fruits of the Spirit. 
It's this idea that we have the Holy Spirit living within us when we become a, a believer. At the moment of salvation, the moment that you realize that Jesus' blood, that his death, his burial, his resurrection was for you, God sends his Holy Spirit to live within you, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, you have this glimpse of eternity. You have this foretaste of heaven. You have this idea of, of tasting the fruit of what is to come, this glory to, re, to be revealed in eternity. Now, the adoption, do you see that there? We're eagerly, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The adoption, this is a legally recognized state of relationship that we talked about earlier last week, uh, that the, the Lord adopts us into his family. This, this is a legalized, uh, rec legally recognized state of relationship that brings with it multiple implications that changes everything about you. There are multiple implications to this adoption. Like we said before, not everybody's the child of God. And, and I know that that's a popular thing that the world says right now, but it's just not true. It's not biblically true. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, line up with reality. You don't, you're not born as a child of God. You're born again as a child of God. You are adopted into the family of God and the purchase price of that adoption is the blood of Jesus. And when that happens, when you're adopted into the family of God, it changes everything. There are mental implications that your identity changes, that you become accepted in the beloved. Think about what that does mentally for you. When you realize God receives and accepts me and brings me in as one of his own, that changes your mind. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you go about life. It changes the way that you evaluate things coming into your life. It mentally has implications. It has spiritual implications as well. Your identity literally changes. You're not who you were before. You are transformed into somebody else. You become a citizen of heaven. You're no longer a citizen of earth. Now you're a citizen of heaven. Now your future home awaits you there. You're just a, a sojourner or a pilgrim, as the Bible says, passing through this life, going to your home in the next. It also has physical implications, and that's what we're looking at here in this section, that your body actually changes, that you get a new eternal body, one that is fit for eternity. It's not subject to decay. It doesn't wear out. You don't have, you know, all those aches and pains that you're hoping go away. Yeah, this heavenly body doesn't have that stuff. It doesn't get sick. All of that stuff goes away, but it's a body nonetheless. Second Corinthians 5 talks about that. Now the Holy Spirit, he brings to us a supernatural hope. And in verse 24, we're told that we were saved in this hope. And this whole, the Holy Spirit brings this hope. He, it's not a, this hope isn't a desire for good. That's not when the Bible talks about hope. That's not what it's talking about. Well, I hope that good things happen or I hope I get to go on my, my vacation later on or I hope I get a raise at work or something like that. It's not a hope of maybe something good coming. It's not also not a hope that bad stuff doesn't happen. Well, I really hope that that test doesn't come back negative. And I really hope that, uh, that, that, uh, that bad thing doesn't happen in my life. It's not an uncontrolled maybe. Biblical hope is a certain expectation, though it has not happened yet. It's like this. It's like the way that you hope for your paycheck at the end of the week. 
right? You're, you don't hope for your paycheck at the end of the week, like, well, I hope it works. I mean, I hope when I put this check in, maybe some of you do, if that's it, you got to get, get rid of that boss, find a new job. Uh, but, you know, if you put your paycheck in, you're not certain that it's going to go in. That's not a good thing. You, you, want, you are putting that paycheck into your account in hope. And the hope is that it's, it's tangible and it's actually there. When you have it, there's no longer any need for hope. I work during the week hoping for the paycheck. But it's not this hope like I hope it happens. It's a certain expectation of what's going to take place. Hoping for what's a certain reality empowers you to persevere. It, when you're living in the middle of the already and the not yet. You know what that, that is? That, that I'm already redeemed. I'm already in Christ. I'm already a citizen of heaven. And yet I'm still here. I'm still fallen. I'm still struggling with this sinful nature. And I'm, so I'm stuck in this middle, in the middle of this already not yet. But this, the hope of eternity, the hope of heaven, this certain reality empowers you to persevere. The tension and the pressure mounts and you're, yet you're able to persevere. Now some aspects of adoption immediately take place. Some of them take place right away, like justification, that, that Jesus gives you his righteousness. He gives you his holiness. But some aspects of adoption still have a future fulfillment, like that heavenly body that you receive in eternity. Now, not only does the Holy Spirit give us a taste of heaven and what our future reality will be like, but he also is presently active within the tension of today. Look at verse 26. He says this, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we ought to pray uh, as we, gosh, I read that wrong the first time too, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he, he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You see, God is present in and active within us. Have you ever had a time when you knew what you should pray for? That you knew that there was something on your mind to pray about, that you wanted to pray, that you knew you should pray. You just didn't have the right words for it. You weren't sure how to say it. Maybe you've even prayed, God, I don't even know what to say. I'm not sure even how to, how to articulate this. In those moments, we're told here in verse 26 that the Spirit literally, He will groan within us. We, we would do well to include within our prayers and ask f and a desire for and, a, and a, an invitation for the Holy Spirit to empower us to be able to pray. God, would you, Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you direct my prayers? And expecting him to intercede through us, even in this groanings. 1 Corinthians 14, 2 talks about this idea of groaning. It says, for you have the ability, um, for if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking only to God, since people won't be able to understand you. You'll be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but, uh, but it will be, but it will all be mysterious. One of the practical outworkings of this spirit groaning within you that we see here in verse 26 is the gift of tongues being worked out. That this ability to speak in this supernatural language that you don't even know and understand. And it's this, uh, I've heard it described as, it's almost like, uh, you know, there's a, 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 you know, 
you're opening the, a bottle and, and letting, the, letting the flow of the liquid actually come out of, of the bottle. But before, you know, you're, it's kind of like all stopped up and you're not sure what to even say. And, and this is the idea of this gift of tongues being worked out and this groaning of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is God, right? So verse 27, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints. God himself knows his mind. You see, the Holy Spirit is God, and he is personally, internally, and intimately connected to you. And therefore, you have this connection to God that is otherwise impossible. Prayers led by the Holy Spirit are always prayers that are in God's will. Have you ever wondered, am I praying in God's will? If it's submitted to, led by Directed by the Holy Spirit, you can have 100% confidence that you're praying in the will of God. Thirdly, not only do we see redemption in God's creation, redemption in God's spirit, but also redemption and God's plan, verses 28 through 30. Look at verse 28. This is one of, one of the most familiar and famous verses in the Bible. It says this, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Notice there it says that God works all things together for good. Now, in the context of what we're looking at in this, verse 28 is in the context of suffering and trial and pain and God's work in the middle of all of that. And we tend to think of pain and trial and difficulty and hardship as detours from the path, don't we? I think of it as this, man, why am I going down this way? I need to get off this road as fast as possible and get back on track with the way that I want to go. Or maybe it's just a setback along the way. We've got to change the way we think about suffering and pain and difficulty. When we embrace pain as the path, then we stop seeing it as the enemy. When we embrace pain as the path, we stop seeing it as the enemy. Now, this does not mean that we go looking for pain. It's not like I'm trying to mess up stuff, trying to bring suffering into my life. But what it does mean is that I trust that God is leading me. He's directing me. He's in control. He has a plan. He is taking me this direction. It, the, notice this, this verse. It says that God, uh, we know that all things work together for good. That this does not say that all things are good. That's not what it says. It doesn't, God's not saying everything is good. It also doesn't say, find the good in all things. That's, that is not what this is talking about. That, that has nothing to do with this. What this is, the, you know, the truth is that some stuff is bad. Some stuff is really bad and it's only bad. But what this is talking about, what this is getting us to, what this is pointing us toward is that even though there are things that we would never willingly choose to go through, God is still good and his plan is for his glory and our good. He's able to take all things, even the bad things, and he's able to bring them together, mix them together to create something good. This doesn't say that take that snapshot of that bad thing in your life and say, find the good in it or think that it is good. And that's, that's nonsense. That doesn't make any sense at all. Some, there are things, there are errors in my life. There are positions or times in my life that I look back at and I still don't have an answer for them. I just look back at them and I go, that was crazy. That was hard. That was difficult. That was not good. That was suffering. And that's all it was. There's nothing good in it at all. And yet God takes that with the other things in my life, right? That's where the all things comes together and he makes something good out of it. 
Think about it like this. Have you ever tasted vanilla extract? I would venture to say that is not good. <laughs> that is, there, you just take a, te a teaspoon of that stuff and swallow that down. You're going to be like, that is terrible. But, but if you take that and you mix it with some other ingredients, you can get something really good, right? It's, you're not saying it is good. You're saying that it can make something good when mixed together with other things. This is what God does. God is so powerful, so miraculous, so amazing. He takes even the bad things, even the stuff you would avoid, even the things that you look at and you go, why is that even in my life? And maybe you're even in the middle of that kind of a trial and hardship right now. God takes even that and brings good out of it. That's how strong he is. Now, how does that practically work out? Well, there's more verses. Verses 29 and 30 is the practical working out of how these all things work together for good. It's a spiritual progression in a very specific order. You cannot have one without the next. The, the previous one sets up the next one to flow out of it. Now, before we get into this list of progression, I want to point out one thing in verse 29. It says this, let, let's read verse 29. It says, for, he, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, notice this, this is the why, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, before we get into this list, God points to the why of it all. What's the point of it all? The, the, the suffering provokes an infinite number of questions in our lives, doesn't it? When you go through suffering, when you go through trial, when you go through hardship, what's the first thing that you ask? Why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Why, why this time? Why, why not them? Why is the question that we always ask? And, and it always comes to us in this time. And God's answer can be really unsatisfying because here's the truth, even if you know why, it doesn't change the fact that it's suffering, does it? It's still suffering. It's still hard. It's still painful. It's still difficult. And God's why in verse 29 is because he wants you to be conformed into the image of Jesus. God actually uses the pain, uses the suffering, uses the trial, uses the hardship to get you to become more like Jesus. That's the point of what he's doing. So God calls our attentions off of our felt needs of why. I just, I want to know why because it's going to make me feel better or I want to know why because then I could make sense of it or whatever. And he says, stop asking that question. Instead, just trust me. Instead of wanting to know why, just trust me. Just trust him that he's using it. And what he's doing is he's producing within you maturity. He's growing you to be more like Jesus. He is using it and he is Good. So let's look at this spiritual progression and uh, that explains how God practically uses all things to work together for good. Now, again, we cannot have the, the, the next one without the previous one. And so the first one in the list, look at verse 29, is uh, for whom he foreknew. For whom he foreknew. God, this idea of the foreknowledge of God. God knows everything. God cannot learn anything. God is never surprised. 
You can't, you can't ever, you know, it's like one of the things I love to do is surprise my wife, uh, you know, with gifts and things like that, especially for birthdays or, you know, Christmas, things like that. And she's really difficult to surprise because she just figures it out. And, and so I've been able to, to figure out a way to hide stuff from her so that I can spring it on her later and get this surprise. You cannot do that with God. You can't surprise God with anything, including your sinfulness. You might be surprised, like, oh gosh, I didn't know that was in there. I didn't know I was that 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 terrible fallenness was within me. But God is not surprised, even if you are. God cannot be surprised with anything. It's like I don't know if you you like, but like old, old, these old movies. But uh, Back to the Future. You remember the Back to the Future series? Uh, my wife uh, and kids and I we just watched that whole series again over the summer. And in the Back to the Future series, uh, when you look at, uh, I think it's the second one, Old Biff goes in a time machine and gives him his younger self a, a sports almanac. And he basically tells him to bet on, you know, the, the sporting events in order to become really rich. And uh, he's already, he, the young self is arguing with his old self, like, I'm not going to do that, old man, you're crazy. And then, it, you know, he proves it to him by turning to a radio station and saying, look, I'll prove it to you. They're going to win by this much or whatever. And, uh, and essentially the whole point of it comes down to it's not gambling if you know what's going to happen. It's a sure thing. That's the same thing with God. His foreknowledge, he knows everything. He sees it all. He's not guessing or hoping or wondering. God has foreknowledge. Now, the second thing in our list in verse 29 is, um, for uh, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, this is a vital thing to grasp, that these go together, that God predestines out of his foreknowledge, predestination or God's choosing of you uh, is according to his foreknowledge. Norman Geisler in his book, Chosen But Free, says it like this. According to the balanced or middle view of sovereignty and free will, God is in control of the universe of free creatures by his foreknowledge. He does not force anyone's freedom, but he knows in advance from all eternity exactly what everyone is going to freely do and how much persuasion will be needed for them to do it. You see, there is no predestination apart from foreknowledge. There, there is no God doing something and predestinating people apart from his foreknowledge uh, uh, that he knows everything. You can't disconnect those parts of God. You can't, you can't somehow say, well, God didn't, didn't know and therefore uh, he, he chose based on his knowledge. Of course he knew and that is the basis of his choosing. Some people have a hard time with that because they think that somehow that puts you in the driver's seat, that you, you're the one who chose, so God chose you because you chose him or whatever. Uh, that, don't get too mixed up in all of this. God foreknew and God chose, God predestined. You see, one of the things to understand and know about predestination is this. God always predestines his people for maturity, growth, development in Christ. It's for the good of believers. God never predestines those who are not his to eternity in hell. He, he never does that. He, does not, he never predestines the destruction of non-believers. Not even once. It's nowhere in the Bible. And so this whole idea, this whole struggle that people have of, well, did God choose me for salvation and he chose them for eternity in hell? That's not who God is. That's not the way God has revealed himself in scripture. God's choosing of those who, have cho who are, uh, according to his foreknowledge, have chosen him. Uh, as Norman Geisler 
very uh, eloquently puts together for us. Now, the third thing in our list is in verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. These he also called. Now, called is the persuasion part of, do you remember when Norman Geisler said that? He said that uh, he knows exactly how much persuasion will be needed for people to do that. This is the calling portion. That, that this sense of God calling you, and if you're a believer in Christ, if you've given your life to Jesus, you know exactly what this, is, what this means. You've felt, you've sensed, you've, you've uh, been internally called by God. You've realized you need to come to the end of yourself and your desperate need for a Savior. There's something that happened within you, that this persuasion of God came upon you, that God pulls us to himself with what Hosea 11.4 says, the cords of his love, that God is drawing you to himself. And if you sense that right now, when you're not a believer, that is the Holy Spirit drawing you into salvation. Don't resist him. Submit to that drawing. Don't resist the the work of God to bring you to salvation. He's doing it for your good because it's what most glorifies him and it's what is best for you. Not only does God call people to himself, but look at verse 30. He also, number four, whom he called, these he also justified. When we submit to the calling of God, we have accessed the gift of grace that God has for us. This is the only way into salvation. There is no other men or name given among men by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus. And then when you are called into salvation, you're called into faith in Jesus. And when you do that, immediately you are what the Bible calls justified. Justified has two major implications in it. The first half of it is that God takes all of the failure of your life and he wipes it away. You get a clean slate. You're brought from failure all the way back to zero. But there's a second part of this that's absolutely amazing that not only are you brought back to neutral, but that God also declares you or views you as though you're just as good as Jesus. You're just as perfect as Jesus. You're just as holy as Jesus. That's insane to think about. That that you are not just brought back to neutral to fail all over again or to mess it all up over again, but no, you're brought all the way into the standing and holiness of Jesus. That's the amazing thing of being justified. And fifthly and finally in verse 30 is uh, the idea there, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. You see, where our perceived righteousness is in justification, that God sees us as holy as Jesus, our practical righteousness is in glorification. God actually produces righteousness and holiness within us. This is simultaneously a present earthly state that we are, see it there? He also glorified. This is a past tense. We are currently glorified, and yet it has future heavenly implications. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says it like this, And I am certain that God who began a good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. God's a finisher. He's a finisher. He's, he, it's not like the projects around your house that are left undone, right? That's not the way God is. He's a finisher. He started a work in you. He's not given up on you. He's going to carry you through all the way to eternity. No matter how bad it looks, no matter how bleak it gets, no matter how terrible the suffering is, God is in control. God is carrying you through and you can trust him. Everything that comes into your life either is either purposed by 
or permitted by God. Everything. It's either purposed by God, he brought it into your life, or it's permitted, it's allowed by him. Nothing has failed to pass through his powerful and loving hands before getting to you. While not everything is good, God is always good. He's all good all the time. And he is so strong that he can even use the bad things that come into your life for his glory and for your good. So let me ask you a question as we close. If you can trust God to safely deliver your soul into heaven, why can't you trust him to to safely deliver you through this hardship? If you can trust him for eternity, why can't you trust him for something temporal right now? Of course you can. Of course he's trustworthy. Of course he's able. And maybe even in hearing that about the powerful hand of God, you realize that you need him to do this for you. And so I want to call you into this faith. I want to ask you to place your hope and trust in Jesus. Whether it's for the first time, you've never done it before. You've never submitted and bowed your heart and your knee to to Jesus. Maybe this is the day for you. And I I would ask you and encourage you to just cry out to him. Recognize that you have sinned against him and ask him for his forgiveness. And he'll forgive you and receive you into his family. He'll adopt you. Or maybe it's time to recalibrate. It's time to get back. It's time to to come back to a place of repentance and trust and hope in the Lord again. Whether that's, no matter where you stand, the Lord is ready to receive you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the chance to open it and study it together today. And we pray that you would show us how we can trust you all the more. You are worthy of praise. You are worthy of honor. And we just ask that you would help us to glorify you. That even in the middle of things that we would naturally avoid and turn from, that we can hope in you and trust in you and realize that you are in control. So we love you. We commit our day to you in Jesus' name. Amen.